0: My name is Pastor AJ, usually I'm with the youth or the children, but today I get to be with you guys, so that's cool. Uh, We are in Matthew 5, you go ahead and turn there if you have a Bible, pull it out. If you don't, the seats in front of you without stuff in the pockets have Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible at home, you can take that home as our gift to you. So you'll have a Bible in your house. Matthew 5, we just finished a series on the book of James. James was a great book, and uh, a lot of it's looking at the heart and what's going on in our heart as we try to live out our faith daily and, and applying God's Word to our life. And a lot of that ends up holding, it looks like, from the Sermon on the Mount. And so today, we're going to go through Matthew 5 through 7. So hopefully you guys have coffee. We're going to be here for a few hours. Matthew 5 through 7. Yeah, there we go. We got one fist bump. Yeah, a few hours of sermon. Cool. Matthew 5. Okay, so here's Jesus. He's at the beginning of his ministry. He's getting to a point where um, he, he's starting to get popular. is starting to follow him. People are following him. Uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of people are coming after Jesus. And, and he, uh, he decides to do something that if you're a political campaign advisor, you'd probably start panicking. You'd be like, Jesus, what are you doing? This is not the right call at this point in time. Jesus pulls the people out and gives them this sermon that's known as the Sermon on the Mount... Um, and he just starts to flip everything they know on its head and says, you've heard it said this, but I say to you, or don't be like the hypocrites instead. And the people following him, this is all they've known for their lives. And Jesus just starts to twist this and flip it on its head. See, the people in Israel have become kind of a legalistic people. If you've heard any amount of biblical teaching. You probably understand this, that we have the Pharisees who are pretty legalistic and Uh, most Jews have come to this point where their desire to follow God is reflected in what they're doing. Their desire to follow God is reflected in what they're doing, um, but not necessarily in their hearts. And so you have things like they're tithing uh, spices, they're tithing small amounts of things, and they're not caring for their parents. Uh, their, Their actions are merely legalistic and not... Necessarily indicative of a heart that follows Jesus. And this wasn't necessarily bad. See, to set up the scene, um, the Jews over time had, had developed this legalistic attitude and, and, and manner of life because that's what they knew and that's what they had and that's what worked. Uh, God was silent for a few hundred years between the Old Testament and New Testament in that he didn't speak through somebody to write scripture. He didn't raise up a prophet. Um, and the people in Israel were... They were attacked by the Greeks. Uh, Alexander the Great comes in and the people, they don't necessarily know what to do, and so they stick to what they know. They stick to, if we follow God through circumcision, we know that He's going to bless us, because that says so in the Old Testament. And if we follow God through um, honoring Him with all of our sacrifices and and honoring Him at the temple, we know that He's going to provide for us. And He did. He did. He provided for them. And as the years go by, they, they basically look back at this game plan and say, what we did helped God to work in this way. And in so doing, they ended up starting to become like all the other nations. What we do appeases God and God acts in this way. And although that is true, what wasn't true was that their hearts weren't reflecting it. It was merely their actions. And so Jesus now it comes in. The God, the creator of the universe, comes in steps in time and starts to interact with people starts to basically say, this is what you've done, this is what you've been doing, let me set it straight, this is what you should be doing. And that's where we come to Matthew 5 in. Matthew 5, it says in verse 1, seeing the crowds he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus walks through these, uh, what we know now as Beatitudes, and starts saying, blessed are those, basically who you think aren't blessed. Blessed are those who uh, the world sees as unfortunate. Fortunate are they, because theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus walks through uh, these, through verse 11, and basically says, rejoice when these things happen to you. Rejoice when the world looks at you in this way, because in the kingdom of heaven, this is a good thing. See, just like us today, people back then were viewing the earth as their entire existence. Our time here, this is all we know, this is all we have, and there's nothing beyond this. And Jesus begins in his teaching saying, look, there's more beyond what you have in this earth. There's more beyond the, the temporary there's much more at stake here. And just because for a few years you're going to be ridiculed by people around you doesn't mean that for eternity this is going to be the case. So he looks at these people and he says, you're poor in spirit, that's for you. This earth is not all that matters. There's a whole lot more at stake here. Point number one in your notes, um, Jesus try- trying to reorient us Trying to re get us to look at what's important. Uh, Point number one says, We are to be a distinct people, reflecting our Creator in every way. We are to be a distinct people, reflecting our Creator in every way. Uh, If you don't know where that comes from, go ahead and turn to Exodus 33. Exodus chapter 33. So far in Exodus, Moses has been asked by God to lead his people out of the land of Egypt, the land of slavery. And they're getting to a point where they're preparing to uh, set up a tabernacle and enter the promised land. And, and things are going to be um, looking up. And, and God's basically laying these things out for Moses. And, and Moses stops in the middle of this and, and looks to God and he says these things. Exodus 33, verse 15. It says, he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on this earth? This is God's heart in the Old Testament for His people. That they be different. That they be distinct. And not merely because they're weird and smell bad, which they probably did, but because they they were obedient followers of Jesus who didn't... Followers of Yahweh who didn't at the time um, succumb to what the rest of the world was doing. The rest of the world says, we need a king. And at this time, the people didn't have a king. The rest of the world says, you need to appease your gods by doing these things. And God is establishing his covenants with them um, based on different qualifications. And so we come now into the New Testament in Matthew 5, that Jesus gives this Sermon on the Mount, and it's still the same theme. You are supposed to be a distinct, different people from every other people on the face of the earth. And that's what Jesus begins getting at here. The heart of this message is, you're supposed to be different. As a follower of God, you're not supposed to be like everybody else. If your life is reflecting culture's life, If your life is similar to a non-believer's life, you're in a bad place. Your faith in Jesus is what makes you different. That peace that surpasses understanding. Those moments where the rest of the world would be distraught and in despair and you still have joy. It makes you different. he continues basically saying you are supposed to be the salt of the earth you are the light of the world and he says if salt loses its taste essentially what good is it except to be thrown out and trampled under feet and and you're supposed to be the light and people don't light candles and cover them up salt is a flavor intensifier it's supposed to bring flavor and and essentially represents here goodness uh, to a situation Light is supposed to be illuminating And, and bring um, Bring light to the, to the world To these situations It's supposed to be uh, a, a changer It, it changes things um, If you walk into a room And, and stub your toe on a wall Because it's dark And you turn the light on you realize that, that was a dumb move Because the wall has been there the whole time um, Light changes things he continues on. Basically, at this point, he's, he's setting the stage for um, what he's about to say about things like lust and divorce and, and oaths. And he's saying, look, I didn't come to change the law. That wasn't my goal. My goal wasn't to, to change the law. Rather, it's to fulfill it. In verse 19, he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This was a weird thing for the people to read because, in their minds, the most right, the people to hear in their minds the most righteous people were scribes and Pharisees. They had seen these people uh, act on the law, live out the law, and basically they were above everybody else. In their culture, they were above everybody else. They had honor. And, and their righteousness was seen by others. They'd pray in the streets and they 't instruct the people on the law. And now Jesus looks at them and says, your righteousness needs to be more than theirs. And the people are like, that's impossible. Like, do you have any idea? We can't do that. Our righteousness cannot exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Have you seen them? Jesus' point is, their righteousness does not flow out from their hearts. And your righteousness can never... Be actual righteousness unless it flows from your hearts. Uh, Truthfully, we can't have righteousness as people apart from Christ. And that's basically Jesus' point here. Your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Yes, it is impossible. How do you get it? Imputed to you on behalf of Jesus. Imputed to you because of Jesus. You get his righteousness, and now your righteousness can exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Not of your own doing. He says, you have heard it said that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Most people there would be like, yep, that is a good law. If you murder someone, you should be liable to judgment. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is getting kind of personal here. He's starting to step on toes and get a little intrusive in, in His message. Saying, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, don't even be angry with somebody. Don't wish somebody harm. Don't say to somebody, you fool. These things will still make you liable to judgment. The people of God are supposed to be a different people. The people of God are supposed to be distinct. Their hearts are what's flowing uh, into their speech and their actions. Their hearts are flowing into their thoughts as well. And so in their hearts, if they're storing up this anger, they're storing up this hatred for people, now they start treating them differently. Now they start reacting differently. Now the most important thing is no longer the most important thing. We have this today as well. This issue of storing up anger or acting on behalf of what we think is important brothers and sisters there are two things there are straight line issues and jagged line issues the most important straight line issue is the gospel that people who are in need of a savior find it in jesus christ we, we are in a world that is marred by sin that is filled with evil and we have the good news Now, when we start to make things about stuff other than the gospel, we can distract from it. We can remove people from from caring about what the Bible has to say by our actions. Um, The gospel is the most important thing. That we have good news that we can share with people. that, That God cared enough to send his son to die in their place, to raise from the dead and pay the price of sin and death. That's good news. When somebody cuts you off on the freeway and you react in anger and start to have road rage, you distract from the gospel. If you get into an argument on Facebook over things that are not central to the truth, you can distract from the gospel. If the way that you're treating other people based on how they treated you is equal, if people have been mean to you and you're you're angry at them back you can distract from the gospel we're supposed to be different and so people they get angry people that don't have hope that don't have good news get angry and we we can be angry too it's what we do with that paul says in philippians don't let the sun go down in your anger be angry and do not sin and so our goal then is as christians to deal properly with these responses the NBA has this rule where uh, a player will be fouled, and they basically have three seconds to respond and react. And after that, they need to, like, chill out. I call it the chill out rule. Um, it's probably not the actual name. They, they instituted that rule because people will react to things. We're, we're reactionary people. And so similarly, we will react to things. Um, what are you doing with that anger? What are you doing with those reactions? This is so important to Jesus. He says, if you remember that your brother has something against you and you're at the altar, leave your gift there and go reconcile with your brother. Uh, If you're in church and you remember that somebody in this room has something against you, reconcile with him before you continue to worship. Uh, These things stop community. These things um, stop us from truly worshiping and worshiping well. Uh, we need to be able to be people who are forgiving and reconciling. He goes through these uh, continuing through lust and saying, "Look if you 've even looked at a woman lustfully in your heart you 've already committed adultery, and that goes both ways for ladies if you 've even looked at a guy lustfully you 've already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus basically going to the extent of you 're all sinners." We're all sinners. That's his point here. And if you've begun to do these things in your heart and think this way, that's already a bad start. The equivalent of, uh, of this is basically Jesus is saying, stop treating the outcomes. Stop treating the reactions or or the symptoms. Treat the root. It would be like watching, be like those of you who worked in kids ministry, it would be like a kid falling over and injuring his leg. And you looking at the kid and saying, stop crying, and then walking away. But his legs hurt. You never helped the leg. Uh, The heart is the problem for us. Uh, Our reactions, our our, our lives are indicative and and outflowing from our hearts. Jesus even says in Luke, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if we understand Jeremiah, the heart is deceitfully wicked, Beyond cure. Um, If we understand Jesus, He gives us a new heart. Have that new heart. Colossians 3 will, will talk to us about that new life that we're supposed to live in Christ, different from other people. He ends chapter 5 going to verse 43. You've heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is a frustrating thing that Jesus teaches us to do, but it's so completely right. He says, basically, like you've heard it said, "Love your neighbor and hate your enemy." And Jesus flips that, and I don't know if you saw him make a plural there. He says, "But I say to you, love your enemies." Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And his reasoning is, this is what God does. You're supposed to be imitating your Father in heaven. And if this is what God does, if He causes the the sun to rise on the just and the unjust, if He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, then you too should be able to forgive and respond to people who hurt you in a loving way. These enemies of yours, these grudges that you hold, have no place in the life of a Christian. Now here's here's where we're at. Some of you heard me say that and you went, but you don't know my past. You don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand what people did to me. You're right, I don't. But you know who does? The God who wrote this, the God who said this. Do you understand what Jesus went through? Do you understand the ridicule, the mocking, the the pain, the the torture that he endured, the, the weight of your sin that he carried unjustly? He didn't have to do that. He wasn't guilty of sin. Do you understand that at the Last Supper, Jesus comes in and he starts washing the disciples' feet and he gets to a guy named Judas Iscariot and he doesn't stop and he washes Judas' feet. Knowing that an hour later, this guy is going to walk out and go betray him. That will lead to his crucifixion. Jesus gets down on his knees and washes his feet. So yes, I might not know your past. I might not understand what you've been through. So to say to you to forgive people, to not hold a grudge might be really hard. But when Jesus, who has endured much more than you have, does the same thing, How can we who have been forgiven so much forgive so little? Jesus is the example we have of living this out. He washed you to his feet. He bore your sin. While you were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And so we too now have to do the same. We respond the same way. This is my favorite verse here, verse 48 in Matthew 5. If you haven't underlined or highlighted that one, that one's going to sum up a whole lot in the Bible. Jesus quoting Leviticus here where God says to his people, Be holy because I am holy. He ends this by saying, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you were reading through that list that Jesus just gave about oaths and and divorce and lust, and you were like, ha ha, he missed my sin, uh, he just covered it. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, I can't do that. I cannot be perfect. Under your own will, under your own power, you will never be perfect on this earth because you are a totally depraved sinner in need of grace. But praise God, we know who gives us that grace. Praise God, we know who enables us to live in the truth Jesus Christ. Continues on to Matthew chapter 6. We are going to finish on time. Look at this. This is going to be good. We are to be a humble people focused on the kingdom. Matthew 6, point number 2 in your notes. We are to be a humble people focused on the kingdom. We are to be a humble people focused on the kingdom. Kingdom is that word that's not there. And you are filling the blank. He says in, in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. We have no problem with this, right? Practicing our righteousness to be seen by other people. Gosh, this is a problem. Um, we, we still, to this day, do things so that other people can see them. I struggle with this sometimes if other people can see me do this, they'll think so much more highly of me. And Jesus begins attacking this here, basically saying, it's not about the other people seeing you. It's never been about the other people seeing you. He continues on. um, Verse 3, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He's so cautious of, of going against what the Pharisees are doing and the scribes are doing and saying, they're doing their righteousness and their deeds to be seen by other people. And you are supposed to be distinct. It's not about the other people. We just finished a, a wonderful book in our summer guys Bible study called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And if you thought I wasn't going to mention Bonhoeffer in a sermon, you were wrong. Um, finished that book and, and Bonhoeffer uh, walks through with us in the end. Basically, saying we are a people who, who desire to be this, this special appearance in front of our community, who desire to have this special standing in front of our community. Uh, he even goes so far as to say, Sin is not welcome in the holy community. Sin is not welcome in the church. You can't be a sinner. And although it's true that we need to expel sin from the church and we need to purify the church, uh, the very fact that of our presence here shows us that we are sinners in need of grace. That nobody in this room is without sin. And so you look around and you see your brother or sister struggling. And we're going to address this in the beginning of 7. You see them struggling. Our goal is to bring them to the right relationship with God. Our goal is not to compare ourselves to other people or, or to say, they're struggling with that sin. I guess I'm doing okay. I guess I'm doing a little bit better than them. So... We're on our way. No, you should be reading Scripture and comparing yourself to that. Compare yourself to the righteousness of God, to to Jesus Christ, not to other believers. It says, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Our concern should not be with other people's opinions of us, but with God's opinion of us. Next section is the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes referred to as the disciples' prayer with John 17 being the Lord's actual prayer. Jesus begins to show his people, importantly, how to pray. And he says, in verse 7, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Don't try to string together the perfect formula to appease God. God knows your heart. And he says this, he says, Your Heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. And if you've been struggling coming to God in prayer for some things, let that verse be reassuring for you. That God knows what you need before you even ask him. And his request of you is that you ask. That you come to him that you petition the Father, that you pray. And Jesus makes a point of setting aside time to say, this is how we pray. This is why we pray. Your Heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Heavenly Father is going to provide for you. And this is how we pray. And He walks through. A lot of you have this memorized, which is awesome. Most of you in the King James Version, which is even more awesome. Um, He says, Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that's where it ends in Matthew. The, the, one of the requests in there is very interesting. Jesus says, give us today our daily bread. That is where I want to camp on for a second. Uh, sometimes we look to God. And I think this is where we cause a lot of our own anxiety in the world today. Sometimes we look to God and we're like, how come you haven't planned out the next 25 years of my life and show me the plan? Or how come you haven't given me these steps? Because I need the next 25 years because I'm starting to worry about next year, whether or not this job going to be sufficient. Or next year, whether my kid's going to be okay. Or whether I'm going to pass this class at school. Or whether my friends are still going to like me. I'm worried about next year. And Jesus says, give us today our daily bread. Pray like this. Give us today our daily bread. And he's going to camp out on that in a second here in Matthew 6. But essentially he's saying, trust God for today. Trust God for today. And this even harkens back, if you remember, I walked through this with the youth on Wednesday. If you remember, um, what were the people in Israel eating in the desert? What were the Israelites eating in the desert? Manna. And so the rules on that were they were supposed to gather it every day right and they weren't supposed to gather more than a day in advance the people learned quickly that when they started doing that they got maggots in their bread jesus is saying (laughs) you know how your tendency as a people is to try to handle it all on your own to try to fix it yourself to try to store up enough so that you're going to be okay mentally can you trust me can you trust me enough to just say i'm going to do today I'm going to take today and not worry about tomorrow. Give us today our daily bread. He goes into that more here in verse 25. Went right in my mustache. That's good. Verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap <clears throat> nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? There's an old song um, and it goes, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow, and he watches over me. Jesus cares about the sparrow. He cares about the birds. Which is super weird um, for us to like look at and think, God cares so much. He's so vast. He's so great. He's so magnificent. All these names of God around our around our uh, worship center, he's so sovereign over everything that he cares about the birds and that he watches out for them. And so Jesus' point is, he also watches for you. If he's cared about the birds and their minor details of life, how would he not be caring about you? And then he says, consider the lilies of the field in verse 28. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Listen, some of you, God brought you here today to hear just that. Some of you need to hear that. You need to apply that to your lives. That tomorrow has enough trouble for itself. That maybe our nervous planning for the next year, our our nervous five-year plan, is not our job to worry about. That maybe the God who cares about the sparrows, maybe the God who cares about the lilies of the field, maybe He has a plan for your life. Maybe it's bigger than what your plan is. I know some of us get frustrated sometimes because we have this plan in place and we're like, There's this angle here, and if I can get through, then I have everything that I need. And God throws that to the side and is like, no, can you trust me for today? Your plans get messed up. And that's frustrating. I know that as a person. I know our plans getting messed up is like super annoying. But if I trust what Jesus says, if I trust that he cares about every detail on this planet, then I can also trust that maybe he has a better plan for my life than I did. Think back to some of the things you wanted when you were younger, and how you're so glad now that those things didn't work out. Maybe it was a relationship, or or a job, or a toy. Um, Maybe you're so glad now, looking back, that that didn't work out. And God's basically saying, "Trust me. Trust me now. That tomorrow has enough to worry about. Where are you at today?" Do you trust God with today? Do you trust God with now? Do you trust that he's still weaving everything together in your life like he always has? Maybe just because he doesn't feel near to you doesn't mean that he's not. Maybe he's still intricately weaving everything together in your life for his glory and for your good. Matthew 7, point number 3 in your notes. We are to be a sincere and wise people, expectantly ready for judgment day. We are to be a sincere and wise people, expectantly ready for judgment day. Matthew 7 famously opens up, and the King James says, Judge not, lest ye be judged. ESV says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Unfortunately, a lot of people, and even in the church, just like those first three words. Do not judge. And that's where we stop. Do not judge. It's interesting because Jesus didn't stop at three words. It's interesting because the the rest of the New Testament authors don't agree with that statement of just simply do not judge. In fact, Paul says judge with sober judgment. In fact, we're asked in Matthew 18 to, to hold each other accountable for our sins. And so what does Jesus mean when he says, do not judge or you too will be judged? Judge not that you will not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Basically saying, be careful with how you're judging. He says this, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Do you not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't judge hypocritically. Essentially what Jesus is saying. Don't look at other people and say, Your sin, wow, that's terrible. You lied and you should not have done that. While behind the scenes, you might have uh, some terrible sins going on in your life. Terrible hatred and anger stored up for years or or lust, or pornography, or whatever it may be. Don't look at other people when you're not dealing with your own stuff and say, you need to fix this. Make sure that when you're going to people, you're going at it with the right motives. Allowing God to work on your own heart first, and then addressing people out of love and in gentleness. In fact, even in the end of James, James was saying, go after the brother who's straying. Go after the lost one and bring them back into the fold. And so here we see... Basically, stop judging hypocritically. Stop looking down on people for their sin. Rather, come alongside and say, hey, let's work on that. Let's give that to God. That's the role of the church in this. Verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. Which of you, if he asks... If your son asks you for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? Now, don't take this verse out of context and basically say, everything I ask God for is going to give to me, so I'm going to be healthy and wealthy. That's not what it means. What it does mean is, uh, he's essentially turning to his followers here and saying, Look, if you're if you're following me, if you're obediently submitting to Jesus Christ, God's going to provide for you. Asking will be given, seeking you will find, knocking the door will be opened. If you're going down that right path, God's going to help it out, not for your own personal gain, but for the gain of the glory of the kingdom of God. you got to keep number one, number one. and That is the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus here saying, like, these things are going to be provided to you because your heavenly Father cares for you is not talking about personal gains. He's talking about advances for the kingdom. So if you think that Jesus providing a Mercedes for you is going to be an advance for the kingdom, I have bad news for you. It's probably not going to be. In fact, maybe Jesus providing some difficulty in your life is going to prove to be an advance for the kingdom. That's number one. That's a straight line issue. The gospel is the most important thing. The advancement of the kingdom of God is the most important thing. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this sums up. This is the law and the prophets. This is all the Old Testament. Whatever you want other people to do, do to them as well. If you don't want people to react to you like that, don't do that. If you don't want people to treat you that way, stop doing that to them. And this is a lesson we teach kids. Do you want your brother to hit you? Then stop hitting your brother. Pretty simple. And this is a lesson as adults that Jesus sees is appropriate to teach us. Because we still don't get it sometimes. Uh, in, the, in, in chapter 5, Jesus is talking about um, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, this code of Hammurabi, this, this Old Testament law essentially, basically saying make sure that your payment is equal for these things. Jesus in Matthew 5 said, turn the other cheek. Uh, here, here we're seeing the same thing of don't do these things to other people. Don't react the same way that they would react to you. You're supposed to love them. And this is where uh, the sermon gets very serious. Uh, starting in verse thirteen, he says, "Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, the way is easy; it leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many." for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few there is a very real sense I talked at the beginning about being eternally minded not merely focusing on the earth or the temporary there is a very real sense where every one of us will stand before God in judgment one day the way there the way to God is narrow the way to the kingdom is narrow and it is hard and it is difficult. And there are few who find it. It's not going to be an easy road. I've sat with some of you and, and cried over difficulties with, with family members not believing in Jesus, with with watching friends stray from the path. I know that this is a burden on the hearts of people in this room. That your family and friends would find the narrow path. Jesus here is saying, it's hard. It's hard. But He knows the way. What's that judgment day going to look like? Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day... If you haven't been paying attention, please pay attention now. On that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's why I wanted you to pay attention to that. That means that people in this room who claim to be followers of Jesus who say, I was in Awana and I served in these areas. I I helped at VBS and and I was there. I helped your people. And Jesus is going to look at them and be like, I never knew you. You and I never had a relationship. You never gave me your heart. What you did was those outward actions that looked good to other people because those were the ones that you were concerned about impressing. Those are the ones whose favor you tried to win and you did win their favor. But that's not going to matter a whole lot on Judgment Day. When you're standing before God and He looks at you and says, I never knew you. Jeez, that should terrify us. That there will be people who thought their whole lives that they were followers of Jesus that thought their whole lives they were doing what they were supposed to be doing and never had a relationship with Him. That should scare us and that should be a burden to us. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize that you will indeed pass the test if you are truly in the faith? The desire here is that if we actually are sincere about this, if we truly desire to follow Jesus, that we are testing our hearts, that we are grabbing brothers and sisters and saying, hold me accountable. Walk with me through this life. This is difficult and I'm terrible at this. Can you help me? Because the seriousness of it is that Judgment Day is fast approaching. Faster and faster. The older you get, the more you're realizing time's going by fast. And you will stand before God one day. And my prayer is that nobody in this room gets looked at and says... I never knew you. But rather, God sees people from Village Bible Church and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. That's our hope. That's our goal. But what we understand from this is that's not easy. That your attendance on Sunday or your help in ministries is not what gets you into the kingdom of God. It's your heart. Have you given everything to Jesus? Have you given up your life Have you said to him, not my will, but yours be done? C.S. Lewis says this. He says there are two types of people in this world. Those who look to God and say, thy will be done. And those who God looks at and says, thy will be done. Can you give up your life to God? Can you stop holding on to those perfect plans that you have set in place? Saying, I'm going to figure out my life. I'm going to have it together. Can you let that go? Can you trust that God knows better than you do? Can you let go of your sin? The way is narrow and the path is hard, and there are few who find it. So then, what should we do? Verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them well, uh, they, they will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had not been founded on the rock. Because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And you know this if you've ever built a sand castle. Uh, sand is not really a good structural support, it gives way. Here's here's the application. Here, your your plans are sand. Your your determining uh, determination uh, in your own life is sand. Your will is sand. God's plans aren't. God's wills rock. God's purpose for your life is rock, and it's not going to be easy. It's going to be super difficult. This is why Jesus continues teaching and, and thousands of people turn away and say we can't do that. And this is why Jesus looks to you and says you don't have to do it by yourself. It was never intended for you to do alone. We're going to start a, a series, a mini-series on the Holy Spirit next. And this is, this is the, empowering, uh, the empowering aspect in the life of believers. The empowering person is the Holy Spirit. That God has given that to us as a seal. That we don't have to live life by ourselves. We don't have to do it all. In fact, we shouldn't. Jesus has given us the Spirit to remind us, to help us how to walk. He finishes this and he says, When Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I know that this is a hard lesson, that this is a hard sermon to hear sometimes. uh, With the things that Jesus has attacked in our lives. These things that we hold fast to. That's why it's hard, by the way. It's hard because we've tried to be Lord over our own lives. That we've tried to hold it together and, and be perfect on our own. And it never works. And that's why this is hard. Because Jesus says, stop doing that. Stop. You're supposed to be different from all other peoples on this planet. Your heart is supposed to be molded after the image of my son. Stop trying to do it on your own. A couple of questions that I want to end with. Does God have your whole heart? Does God have your whole heart? Or are you playing church, merely pretending to worship God? Please, everyone in this room, ask yourself that question, because... It looks like on Judgment Day from Matthew 7, there will be people who think, I, I was doing everything I was supposed to do. And Jesus will look at them and say, I never knew you. So, so examine yourselves as Paul encourages us to. Does God have your whole heart? Finally, how can you deepen your trust in God this week? How can you deepen your trust in God this week? Is it giving up those five-year plans that you have? And God's not saying don't plan for the future. God's not saying don't, don't be wise with your time. What he is saying is don't hold so fast to that as if that's what you're serving. How can you deepen your trust in God this week? Will you allow him to be God? He's going to be anyway. Are you going to fight him on it? God wants our hearts. That's what James was about. That's what the Sermon on the Mount's about, is that our hearts are turned toward Jesus that what we do is different from all the peoples on this earth, God wants our hearts. let me pray, Lord Jesus, thank you for just your truth in this word, Lord, that you cared enough to step into creation and to to give this sermon, Lord, at the most <laughs> confusing time in your ministry lord you you decided to do this and you you led your people through what is right for a follower of yours, what God's after, Lord. Help us to be a people who imitate this, who don't worry, who, who follow you with our hearts and who are serious about Judgment Day. Lord, be with all of us this week. Help us to trust you daily. In Jesus' name, amen.